Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. For those who are here for the first time, uh, <clears throat> we are finishing up um, a uh, course in happiness uh, that is based on this book. It's not the end of happiness, <laughs> mind you, but we're finishing with uh, working with this book. How many people, uh, there were I think nine or ten books last, last week, uh, who's been reading it this week? Interesting? You're getting into it? Yeah. Uh, and I've been going through these nine choices of extremely happy people um, after uh, uh, identifying 230 or so people who fell into that category, these, uh, these researchers and authors um, who will be doing a day long at Spirit Rock in December um, uh, wrote this book. And, Many people saw Rick Foster when he was here, and uh, you could see that he is a happy guy, and uh, <laughs> it kind of rubs off on you after a while. And uh, tonight, the last choice, um, just as a review, the first eight, the intention to be happy is really the start of the whole process. Um, accountability, not looking outside of yourself or blaming others for circumstances, but seeing that you have some um, power to affect your life. Um, identification, identifying the things that really do bring you happiness, the deepest kind of happiness. Centrality, putting those things in the center of your life, not squeezing them in, but um, making them a priority. Recasting, turning the suffering that we all come to, uh, that we all face in life into uh, lessons and opportunities to be that much more open and in touch with, with our hearts and um, um, using them as opportunities to wake up. Options, seeing that there's many possibilities in any situation, not getting stuck in one fixed um, plan which will either, you'll either pass or fail. Appreciation that is being present for life and appreciating all the beauty and also appreciating the difficulties, uh, which really requires a presence or mindfulness. Last week we talked about giving, the power of generosity, that all of these people um, practice naturally as part of their uh, expression of happiness. And tonight, the the last choice that they found as a common denominator with all the people that they interviewed is that of truthfulness. Truthfulness. As I've been saying all along, all of these choices are not uh, particular to, to their findings. These principles are found in all the great works of perennial wisdom uh, and certainly in the Buddhist uh, model and uh, set of teachings each one of these uh, has been talked about in Dharma talks and since the time of the Buddha for 2500 years and truthfulness is certainly one of the cornerstones of the Buddhist teaching so I'll talk about it as I've been doing with the others in terms of both these teachings and also um, their findings. Uh, first, as far as um, Buddha Dharma, truthfulness or honesty is one of the ten perfections, just like um, uh, generosity, I said last week, is the first of the perfections in the, in the list, the paramitas. Honesty is one of those ten perfections, and interestingly enough, it was the one of those ten that was consistent through the full development of the Buddha's journey from the time, it is said, if you can relate to this story, from the time that he made the commitment eons and mahakalpas <coughs> before 
when he was inspired by Dipankara Buddha uh, to um, go on the path to full Buddhahood, the one trait that carried him through all of his um, lifetimes and process was honesty. So it seems that if nothing else, if you have that, you're facing in the right direction. And in the formal teachings, honesty also is part of the broader um, theme of sila or virtue, um, morality, good conduct, which is the foundation in his teachings for happiness. You know, the Eightfold Path is also broken up into sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila, right speech, action, and livelihood. Our relationship to the world, not causing suffering through our actions. That that is the basis for um, samadhi, or the development of uh, the mind training or heart training, right uh, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and then panya, or the development of wisdom, right thought and right understanding. He said it all starts with living a life of integrity and honesty. Just hearing words like honesty or somebody who is genuine or somebody who speaks the truth or somebody who is authentic just those words, for me anyway, and perhaps for you, just open up a space of, of ease and trust and, um, and interest and safety. We say we take refuge in the Dharma, you know, those, those chants that we did at the end of the sitting. If you're not familiar to it and might seem a little strange, what are they chanting here? This is basically taking refuge in the Dharma and the word Dharma, the main translation of Dharma is the truth, is the way things are. So it's a, it's, it's a source of refuge it's amazing. It, it, when I, I reflect on it, it's just uh, fascinating how we have such a yearning for truth and it's such a source of comfort and trust. We take refuge in the Dharma. The truth is a place that we can find inspiration and safety. Just Dharma talks, you know. When you think about it, it's just all of us have this hunger to hear the truth. Even if we've heard the Dharma talk, oh, it's that talk on the five hindrances, I've heard that one before, or that one on the Four Noble Truths, you know. There's something that calls us to want to hear the truth. It's like, oh yes, somebody is saying it like it is. And it opens us up and it brings joy to our hearts. And when we hear the truth, we, we start to become free and relax and feel a sense of connection. And that life of integrity is essential to happiness. Ajahn Amaro, who uh, most of you know and who comes down here um, once a month, or his, his uh, monastery, people from his monastery will be coming down once a month on Tuesday, the first Tuesdays of the month. He talks about life without sila, life without integrity, is like a car without brakes. You know, sooner or later you're going to crash. And just read this last piece that, that he has in here. We can see that just by observing the precepts, by living a life of integrity, the mind is naturally freed from remorse. There's nothing horrible that we've done that we have to justify or remember. When the mind is free from remorse, then we have a natural contentment, a sense of gladness that alleviates self-criticism and depression. It's true, isn't it? So, it makes sense that it is um, an integral aspect of happiness, if we want to choose that for ourselves. Krishnamurti, who I'm sure most of you have heard of, has this beautiful line. He says, it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. Now, you can say, oh, well, does that mean I don't have to make any effort? No, 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 not quite. 
He's saying make the effort, but it's the effort to really see what's true. The effort is, is a means to discover what's true, and the truth is where the liberation comes from. I'm remembering a, um, uh, one of my favorite songs, a James Taylor song, um, Shower the People You Love, and the, the line that um, I get shivers, really, every time I, um, I say it or, or hear it. It's the line, once you tell somebody the way that you feel, you can feel it beginning to ease. Isn't that a beautiful line? But we kind of keep the truth hidden. Oh, I couldn't say that. I couldn't say that I really care for this person. Or I couldn't say that I've got something that's keeping me closed. You know? And it's very painful, the price that we pay for keeping things inside. Once we tell somebody the truth, our heart begins to ease. Like the Buddha talks about the sure heart's release. And here's a, a, a quote from the book, they quote Emil Zola, who says, when truth is buried, when truth is buried, it grows, it chokes, it gathers such explosive force that on the day it breaks out, it blows everything up with it. <laughs> There's a price to pay for burying the truth because sooner or later, <laughs> it comes out, doesn't it? And the meditation practice, one way that we can look at it is a very direct commitment to see the truth, to look honestly at what is so. Even if that what is so is, oh, sitting here and breathing. It might not seem very profound, but in that very simple act, you're starting to recognize what's actually here. And that, the, the seed that's planted from that commitment to see what's actually here, fully eyes open with a, with a caring heart, transforms us. Because if we can honestly see what's here with our breath, we can honestly start to practice and see what's here in our hearts, we can see where there's pain, where there's joy, where there's confusion, where there's neurotic thought patterns, where there's whatever it is. We don't need to hide anymore. The act of meditation is a practice of seeing what is true. As we see it, certainly everybody has their own truth, but all we can go by is the truth as we see it. I remember the first time I did a, um, uh, one of the long retreats, the, the three-month courses that um, Kevin's done and um, some, some people here might have done, Debbie Sarnath has done. Uh, the first time was in 1976 and it was like, it, was, it blew my mind. You know, obviously you sit for three months and something will happen and, uh, and yet it was so hard to put into a few words the question that you're met with by everybody after you go through something like that, so how was it? <laughs> how do you encapsulize three months in a few words when they probably don't even want to know more than a few words or maybe they just want to hear, fine, you know. Guy Armstrong has good advice. He says, when somebody asks you how it was, just say, great, and that's probably all they'll want to hear. You know? <laughs> But for me, I had to kind of sum up answering the question, not only how was it, but what did I learn from it? Which I knew my parents were going to ask me. So, what did you get from it, right? <laughs> so I had to come up with something. And what it came down to for me, that particular retreat, and each one gives many uh, unique lessons, that particular one, what I came away with, uh, and I've tried to live, although it's a lifelong art in living, is it's not worth the ripples in my mind to act out of harmony with what I know is true. Which was, 
it was quite a revelation, although I kind of read, yeah, the truth is good, and it's nice to, you know, be honest, and not only read it, but, you know, thought for myself, yeah, it's a certainly a good thing to do. It's nice to be able to trust people. But seeing on such a, for me, on such a profound level, the ripples that start to get created when you are living outside of your truth, the subtlest ones, those ripples keep on reverberating. And I just thought, wow, why do I do that? Why would I do that once you see clearly? That doesn't mean I haven't created a few ripples in the last 20 some odd years. But to see it directly, you have the choice. It's a clear choice whether or not you're creating suffering for yourself or not. There is this... um, uh, these uh, wholesome factors that I've mentioned before of Hiri and Otapam, of a place inside of us that feels shame if we would do something out of, uh, out of harmony or feels dread at the thought of somebody else finding out about it and our reputation being shot. Those are wholesome factors. and We've talked before about how Extraordinary it is that we're wired up, most of us, unless we have deep psychological wounding and damage from an early age, most of us are wired up with what we call conscience. And if you listen carefully enough, you can hear. It's calling loud and clear. One of my my favorite... uh, Stories and Be Here Now, which was my Bible for many years. There is a Sikh story about a holy man who gave two men each a chicken and said, Go kill them where no one can see. One guy went behind the fence and killed the chicken. The other one walked around for two days and came back with the chicken. And the holy man said, you didn't kill the chicken. And the the man said, well, everywhere I go, the chicken sees. That's another way of saying he saw in himself. He could feel, even though nobody else would discover, he knew. To be that in touch with your truth, you realize that there's a price to pay, even if you never get found out. I had an, uh, a, um, one simple teaching this last week uh, just to see once again that choice. This is a little, bit of, a little bit of true confessions. I was playing Scrabble with my mother, who, you know, she was here last week. And she is, where, she is a serious Scrabble player and really good and likes to win as much as. I do, which is a lot, right? (laughs) So we have these classic Scrabble games, right? And there I was, she put down a word, and she said, and she's a really good speller, and I'm I'm a pretty good speller, too, and she she said, that's how you spell it, isn't it? And and at first I thought, yeah, it was, you know, oh yeah, that's how you spell it. Uh, the word was lean, uh, L-I-E-N. But when you're looking at it vertically, it just it changed around. I thought, oh yeah, that, that's how you spell it. And the way it was set up on that I, which was an open space, I could put down seven letters and really get to her. Right? But there was a part of my mind, there was just one... I don't know where it came from, and I, I, I had in some way said, why did that thought come in there? But I said, maybe you should look it up. And we, we play, you can look things up if you're not sure. So I just happened to look it up, and there it was, L-I-E-N, which blew the seven-letter word, you know. I thought, oh. She said, okay, your turn. And I... I knew I was going to be talking on truthfulness this week. Uh, but the, and so it was, a, it was a moment of reflection. You know, it's not a big deal, you know. And, and yet, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to, but I, I knew I couldn't. And the, the thing was, I knew that if I, if I didn't say something, 
I get the, the seven letters, the 50 points plus, but I'd feel lousy for the next week or so. You know? And again, I was reminded by that, uh, that lesson, it's not worth the ripples. So I'd she, said, she what? She would eventually no, she wouldn't have found out. No, she wouldn't have found out. But I said, you know what, mom? It's not spelled that way. You know? uh, I just looked it up. And she said, okay. I never told her about the seven letters. Yeah. <laughs> I won the game, but uh, <laughs> that's what made it even sweeter. But, um, but it was just, it was such a clear seeing. If I go this way, I'll get what I want, but it'll feel yucky. It's just not worth it. One of the most important aspects of this truthfulness is being truthful with ourselves. You know, like Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night, the day, thou canst not then be false to any man, he says in Hamlet. It starts with being honest with yourself and getting clear on what you really feel what you really think, what you really want, which is scary, which is hard for a lot of people, any one of those, what you really think, okay, it might not be easy to sort that out, what you really feel, a lot of people have difficulty with that. So it takes practice, for, not for some, for some it's just natural. They're so in touch with their feelings, their emotions, and women are blessed, I think, with more, whether it's biological or, or societal, uh, from working with people for 20-some-odd years. It's more natural for, I've seen, not, not, not always, but for women to be more in touch with their feelings. And it's, but it's hard for some women and a lot of men to be in touch with their feelings. I know it was for me when I started doing this. Sometimes it still is, but it's, uh, it's practice. With practice, you can do it. And to be in touch with what you want or what you need, that's a real challenge for a whole lot of people. They think, well, I'll be a Buddhist, you know, I don't need anything, or I don't want anything, or oh, it doesn't matter. There is a price to pay for that. It's called confusion, and it's also, it leaves it up to other people to figure out what you want, you know, which is great to service for them as well as for you. This is one of the, um, one of the people from, uh, from the book talking about being honest with herself. She says, this is a, a woman who came to the United States Mercedes, a spirited teenager after living the first years of her life in the outskirts of Mexico City. Truth is the contract I made with myself. It's not always easy, but honoring it makes me happy. It has evolved over time. It has become my belief system and essential to who I am, my foundation. It's what I can come back to. It guides me. When I experience something that goes against this truth with who I want to be, lights and buzzers go off in my brain and heart and stomach. That's my signal to reevaluate. Truth is a motivator for me. It keeps me on a straight line, on track. It helps me when I'm floundering. And that's a bit how the practice works as it becomes more and more rooted in, in us. Lights and buzzers go off. That's how the precepts work. Not that you never are going to be uh, coming close to breaking a precept, but when you have that commitment to integrity, there's a signal when you're going out of that integrity. And it's great that it happens. There's a price to pay. You can't pretend you don't know. But it's a wonderful price because if you stay in alignment, that is a source of real happiness. So being clear with yourself, with your own truth, and not needing to apologize. This is something that is also very foreign to a lot of people. Well, I feel angry. 
oh, I shouldn't feel angry. Of course they did this. You know, I can understand, you know. Or I feel hurt, or I feel, you know. And it might not make any sense on a rational level, but it's still what you feel. And it's, it's quite, I feel, essential to recognize that you don't need to apologize for how you feel. It's just how you feel, as irrational as it is. It doesn't mean that you're right about what happened. It just means that that's your reality, that you have to start from there so that there can be an understanding. If somebody says to you, if you've done something inadvertently to hurt them, and they say, you know, I just feel hurt, you know, I feel really sad. You know, there's not much that they can argue about that. That's just how you feel. If, you, if they say, you did this to me and how dare you, you know, you're a little less likely to ask for feedback in the future. <laughs> but if they say, this is how I feel, you know, I can't explain it, but I don't want it to get in the way. That's just, that's workable. Here's somebody who's, who told the truth and was very brave about it. I can see it. Where is this? My truth. Okay. 16-year-old uh, Shana was named the happiest person at her, at her Atlantic area high school. Um, we did an informal poll of her friends and they agreed she's resilient, smart, and funny. If a situation crops up, she says, that I'm not sure of, I stop dead in my tracks and I really think about it. What do I really believe? What do I honestly want? And sometimes it's quite different from what's expected of me by my friends or family. If I don't take time to analyze, I get off track. I want to be truthful to myself instead of saying things just because I think I'll get everyone's approval. It makes me happier than just about anything else. We interviewed her in her house and talked with her family afterwards. There is tension in this household, as it turns out. Shana is seen as selfish and socially unacceptable by her stepmother, Connie who says, oh, she's honest, all right, but the, at the expense of others. I think Shane is a selfish child. For example, when she has friends over, they check the refrigerator for snacks, and Shana asks them what they want to eat and tells them what she wants to eat, too. That's not polite. She should wait for them first. Other people first, I always say. This is her stepmother. That's why when my son Joey and I are looking in the fridge for something to eat, neither of us will go first. <laughs> you can wait a long time and get very hungry yeah. he's so generous he's so generous he's almost afraid to say what he wants and if he decides to end up with my preferences I feel that I've done the right thing and raised him properly what seems like an almost insignificant example becomes an important glimpse into how this family feels about truth their difference in the, their approach damages this parent-child relationship. Connie truly believes that expressing her own needs is selfish, while denying her needs is generous. She grew up with shoulds that many of us have been taught. She should be sacrificed, a sacrificing mother, put her children's needs first, etc., etc. And with this, Connie is not happy, goes on later on, and told us that she scoffs at the idea that happiness is possible. Her shoulds are the source of her unhappiness. Why? Let's compare Shana's approach with Connie's. Shana meets her own needs by interacting honestly with people. Connie often doesn't get what she wants, walking away from interactions feeling deprived. By her own example, Shana clearly encourages her friends to meet their own needs, Connie is unclear with Joey, so he can't evaluate her needs and feels hesitant to assert his own. Shana empowers her friends to match her honesty with theirs. Connie is teaching Joey to deny his needs, ironically, by being dishonest with himself and with Connie. 
When Shana interacts with people, everybody gets what they want or walks away with an openly negotiated settlement. Since Connie believes that asserting her own needs is selfish, it's inevitable that her son or anyone else who negotiates with her will walk away feeling guilty. Perhaps he inadvertently took something she wanted. He'll never know. So you're not doing anybody a favor by saying, oh, no, 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 you know, or having them try to guess what you, what you need. Being truthful and honest is essential to good communication. And the Buddha's teachings on truthfulness, on right speech, are quite simple. There are four guidelines we've mentioned here from time to time. Saying what's honest, being honest, saying what's true, using pleasant language, because harsh language creates a kind of contraction and you're not being received and, and heard as effectively. Not gossiping or slandering. There's a price to pay for that. You know. What if they talk about me? It, it's a simple prescription for paranoia. You start gossiping about everybody else, you probably assume that they're doing the same about you. And then the fourth is um, not engaging in unnecessary conversations. You know? And there's big interpretation about what's unnecessary. You know? Because there's a lot of speech that's not profound. You can't be profound all the time. I remember at one, one uh, end of retreat, we started working with speech and you know, people were you know, wanting to talk from their hearts and, uh, and one person said, if I hear one more person say one profound thing from their heart, I'm going to throw up. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful to be in touch and speak your truth, but a lot of times words are just used to connect, to say, hi, you in there? I'm in here. Nice to, nice to know you. You know, whether it's about the weather or the news or, um, you know, sports or whatever. It's just a way to connect. But a lot of talking is really not conducive to happiness. Particularly when it's just talking that increases one's judging mind. Did you hear what so-and-so said? You know, that's that's not so helpful. And you might try an experiment that I've, I've put out when I do the beginning class that I was very impressed with when it was suggested to me to take a period of time of a week or a day or a few hours you know, and not talk about any third party that wasn't in the room with you. About 90% of your speech falls away. You know? <laughs> and if you can be comfortable with the space that it creates, it's very freeing. So those are the, the main guidelines. They come down to saying what's truthful and what's useful. And sometimes that means not <coughs> speaking, but being quiet. If it's not useful to speak your truth at that time, then it might be more appropriate to not speak it. If the other person isn't ready to hear it, if you're not ready to say it in a way that, that is skillful enough for them to hear it, if the timing isn't right, if your intention is to show them up or impress them or make them feel bad, it all comes down to intention, just like all of these steps started out with intention. What is your intention to speak? Is it for greater communication or is it to be right? or make somebody feel bad. And if you can talk without blame, but talking about your own experience, then, as I said before, you've got that much better chance to be heard. So all of these are a way of underscoring for all of us the power and the gift of honesty and truthfulness, not to be a goody-goody, not to be a saint, not to, you know, win approval, those things are nice byproducts, 
but for the very pragmatic intention to create happiness in your life. It needs to be based on a foundation of integrity and truth. So, um, I think I'll stop here and take some comments or questions uh, about either this topic or any of these as we've gone through this series, these uh, nine choices. Um, And uh, I appreciate your um, staying with it because I wanted to stay with it and hoped it didn't seem too sappy, you know, at times, oh, he's talking about happiness again, you know. When are we going to get to suffering? (laughs) There's enough suffering to go around. There'll be plenty more to come. But as I've said many times, you know, suffering, like Thich Nhat Hanh says, suffering is not enough. That we have to learn to, um, to celebrate life and be joyful and appreciate all the blessings. That's why the Buddha taught. He taught about suffering and the end of suffering. How to really be happy. So as you, you do practice this, um, I hope your definition of happiness is that deeper one that we've talked about. Not just about pleasure or cheerfulness, or, but a deep kind of inner contentment that comes from connection with life. So any comments about this topic or... Uh, the whole series. Yeah, so pass the talking stick back and you can uh, say your name as you start. And speak right into the microphone. Okay, I'm Howard. I was really looking forward to tonight, James, the truth thing. Um, what I wanted to um, say is that for years and years and years I was not able to tell the truth. I was so frightened of revealing myself to people, and um, so I wouldn't tell the truth about anything. And I realized in doing this work and all the other kinds of uh, spiritual path work that I'm currently involved in, that it was a way to keep people at a distance, and that the truth, whatever that was at the time, didn't seem good enough, so I either made it more than or less than, but I didn't tell the truth specifically. And in the work now, the truth is the most important thing to me. So when I get in a fearful place, a lot of times I want to lie to people. And what I've learned to say is, listen, I want to tell you a lie right now. I don't want to tell you the truth. So if it's okay, I'd like to tell you the lie, and then I'll tell you the truth. (laughs) And... uh, And it really works for me because it takes me out of that fear place and they think it's hysterical, but it it actually lets people come closer to me. And what I found in doing this and practicing this is that about a year and a little, about a year and a couple of months ago, I made a new friend and I just showed up as myself and he said, you know, you are so honest, it doesn't seem truthful. (laughs) And he said, because the world is such a lying place, and over the course of the year that we've known each other, he said, you know, who you said you were and who you showed up as, I have come to find out is actually accurate. And the other side of it is sometimes people tell me I'm too direct, that it's too difficult to hear what I have to say, or they call it harsh. So I'm trying to take that in and try to learn more about how to use my words mm-hmm. for how I, ju- I just I see the truth for myself. Mm-hmm. And it changes. I realize that I, ta- I tell the truth now for how I know it. And it's accurate for how I know it now. And I've also asked friends that know me well that if they feel as if I'm not being honest, to tell me what I'm saying doesn't sound accurate so I could hear it back and then I can change it or say it in a different way Mm. and I realize it's really changing my life and by telling the truth it's actually pushed a few people away from me Mm -hmm. which I found very interesting because I thought it would really draw people Mm -hmm. close but some have fallen by the wayside because they really don't I found or feel don't want to really hear what's true Mm. so that's thank you very much that was uh, was beautiful that's a great secret and I I might pass that on uh, from time to time. Maybe I'll try it myself. Um, that other piece around 
people feeling it's a bit too harsh. That, I think that's really, um, it's good to get that feedback too, if you want to know the truth, because if the truth is said kindly, it's much more effective, much more powerful. That's where getting in touch with your intention is essential in this process. And it's a big step to just say what's true or get in touch with what's true. And there are times, like I said a moment ago, because of the timing, because, uh, because there's an emotional charge or because, whatever the reason, because your intention isn't quite clear that um, it's not the right time to say your truth. And that's a whole art, that's a lifelong art in, in working. The Buddha, there's many stories of the Buddha being asked something and just remaining silent. That was his answer. You know, because it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to, to respond. So good luck with that. And just keep, keep that kindness as the, the foundation or the energy that the truth rides. Thanks, Howard. Is it? Yeah, Bud, over here. Um, Bud, <laughs> when you first started talking about this, uh, I was the first couple of talks. Um, I had difficulty mostly around the definition of happiness. Um, and I told myself, um, happiness is not that important to me. Um, that um, I don't, th th there seemed to be a value judgment on intending to be happy was good. And intending to be something other than happy was bad. Um, however, you, in, you're talking tonight about a deeper kind of happiness. Uh, and I think I'm understanding what happiness is better than I did initially. Because um, I know I do things that are difficult and painful um, and don't make me happy uh, in, in some sense in, in the short run, certainly. Um, but I think there's a deeper happiness that comes much further down the road that um, may not have been a, even apparent at the time I made the decision what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're definitely not talking about uh, the short term. We're talking about delayed gratification for, for, the, big, for the bigger picture. Short term happiness, you know, you can get that in a, you know, in a fix or in a, you know, a hit of something, that's what most people are driven by. But the deeper kind of <coughs> sense of wholeness and inner contentment, that's worth it. That's what the Buddha said, go for the highest happiness. You want the, you, I want to tell you about happiness. You want happiness? The highest happiness is peace. And if you do what's needed to go for that highest happiness, it just so happens that all the other happinesses along the way will be experienced. So he was into happiness. He was sometimes called the happy one, actually. You know, although he didn't go around, you know, doing a jig and you know, uh, it's it's different from the the laughing Buddha image of the Chinese. But he was talking about happiness. So that's the key element to define what happiness is for you. Yeah. Yeah. Initially, I didn't understand why you were talking about happiness. <laughs> what does this have to do with Buddhism or anything like that? But mm -hmm. I think I understand that. Mm, thanks. And remember that first line from the Dalai Lama's book, The Purpose of Life is to be Happy. It's like we are an expression of life and, and why, you know, you've got a choice here what to do with it. So thanks for that. Uh, yeah, first, Ed. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, I'm usually not so uh, anxious to talk, but I just came back from visiting my family, <laughs> and there's a certain cultural aspect to this that that I uh, I 
agree with what you said, and you couldn't have said my opinion better, but I want to stay clear of, of um, fixed ideas, and uh, having just spent two months <laughs> with my mom and with, with my, my uh, other typical East Coast family, um, I, I know that, that that's not the way they do things, and uh, I, I guess I've made spiritual progress back there in, to the extent to which I could go along with and tolerate the opposite of what you're saying. I, I, I never have known how to, dress, how to address cultural differences when dealing with, with spiritual realities. You mean if you're in an environment that's not supportive of what you're, what you're aspiring to? When in Rome, and, and if they're slaughtering people, you know, maybe you're supposed to pitch in. That's in, an interesting well, idea. Well, I made that a rather extreme example, just for the... <laughs> no, the Buddha, actually, it's right in the teachings. The Buddha said, um, if you want to be wise, hang out with wise people. And if you are surrounded by people who are what he would call either foolish or uh, confused, then you've got to be strong enough within yourself to not be overwhelmed by, by that energy. Taking things in small doses is, uh, is a healthy prescription for, for many be, people. Beyond that, uh, uh, one of my homeless colleagues in People's Park taught me this lesson recently. It's, he's, he, as he put it, it, it's impolite to be too happy in the park because a lot of people are going through a lot of stuff and it makes them really envious and jealous and they'll come at you. Yeah. They'll, they'll <laughs> so you, yeah, exactly. So you have to see what your environment is and, and you know, not necessarily wear it on your, on your sleeve or on your face. There can be a quiet kind of happiness that's uh, that's just as, as powerful inside and letting it out judiciously. It's, there is no fixed rule. That's what I love about all of this. There's no fixed rule. It's all for us to inquire and see what's most skillful in meeting the moment. Okay. Uh, last one. I know you want to make it qu uh, quick because we're just... Listen, I don't, don't want to knock happiness, okay? <laughs> uh, or say that happiness is something to be avoided. But there is some good stuff about suffering. Okay. All right, we'll get to it. <laughs> when, when, I think, when I think of all the major growth periods in my life, it wasn't when I was being fat, dumb, and happy. It was when I was suffering. Yeah. I'm, I couldn't some agree with next you more. Week. Yeah. Well, as, as we've said many times, suffering is what deepens compassion. So it's not to say this is... This is the whole story. And often happiness is downplayed. And in fact, there's such an emphasis on the first noble truth that sometimes there can be um, a, a joyless feel or deadening of the spirit. So they're both part of life. That's why there's, there's loving kindness and joy. And joy is a factor of enlightenment, and loving kindness is a is a byproduct of of the the clear mind. And there's compassion to meet suffering as well. So they're all they're all part of the game. We, no one piece can uh, can address it all. So we just inquire week after week. We'll get to suffering. There's, there's plenty of it. Yeah. So let's close with a, a loving kindness. So as you sit here, just breathing through your heart center, taking in benevolent energy from around you, from life, and breathing it in through your heart, filling your body, filling your being with this kind energy. And as you breathe it out, Surround yourself with this energy and extend it outwards.
and for a moment get in touch with your love for the truth whatever that means to you how different it is from deception or confusion what a relief to see clearly and to be aligned with the truth and acknowledging that send some kind thoughts to yourself and feel appreciation that you do have that understanding may I be happy in my life may I be at peace may I see the truth clearly May I express my love well. And now, extending these thoughts include other people in this room and then throughout this neighborhood, people and animals and all living beings. And just continue to radiate out these thoughts of kindness and encompassing everyone near and far, all beings in all directions, as I want happiness, may all be happy. As I want peace, may all beings have peace in their lives. May all beings be touched by the power of loving-kindness. May all beings see the truth clearly and express that truth wisely. Thank you for your attention. <clears throat> Have a good week. This talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group on August 26, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.